all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation. We're coming up on over close to 52 episodes. I don't know what number. I think we're in our 40s right now. Today, I'm talking to Bobby Brannigan, which is a lovely Irish name. Uh, Bobby hails from New York. He is the CEO and founder of a vertical-specific marketplace called Mercado. Uh, this is his second go-around. Prior to that, he was in another vertical marketplace, which is Valor uh, Books, um, which you know we're going to talk a lot more about that. Bobby is in uh, San Diego, and he plays in a beer league uh, for hockey. So, Bobby, <laughs> you, you won last night, huh? We won. We crushed him. Like ten to two or something. Oh, it's a blowout. Yeah. <laughs> are those all? Are those all your teeth? Like, are you like a uh, you know big hockey player? That one is a fake one. Yeah, I lost a few. Actually, I lost them all in the adult league. When I played hockey growing up, I never never lost teeth. But then in the adult league, I lost uh, two times. I got them knocked out. One time they put the same one back in, and another one they had to replace it. So, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, and so like yeah, you you and you you say you grew up playing hockey, yeah. Yeah, grew up playing, uh, started playing roller hockey in the streets of Brooklyn and then started playing hockey, ice hockey in Coney Island, actually. They have an ice rink right on the pier in Coney Island. Very cool. So why don't you tell uh, us a little bit about Mercado first? And, you know, I'd love mm -hmm. to kind of talk about kind of where, where you found, you know, the, the value proposition there. And, you know, I, I think to tell the Mercado story, you probably have to tell the Valor story. Um, so I'd love to kind of hear about, you know, your background and, and starting those two those two companies. Uh, great. So on the Mercado side, you know, we're an e-commerce platform for independently owned grocery stores. We make it very easy for them to sell online. It's a turnkey model. Um, all they do is give us a file of their inventory or connect us with their POS company. We integrate. Uh, we do the marketing. We build a website. We have third-party delivery networks that we integrate with. And they're online, up and running and driving sales. So it's really a... Um, a new channel for the store to expand their business into e-commerce. Very cool, very cool. And what, what made you get that that idea to work with independent groceries? Where was the pain point there and what got you interested yeah, yeah. So, in it? I guess that ties back to the, the story. So, um, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, as you're talking about, and my family has a grocery store there for over 45 years before I was born and started working in the store when I was eight years old, stocking the shelves and delivering groceries, even back then. Um, still doing it today. So, uh, worked in the store and then, you know, worked in the store up until college. And then I decided to go away to school. And then when I went away to school, um, I ended up getting in, into e-commerce, into an e-commerce business myself, um, rather than, you know, joining the family business. I did my own thing, um, and built a textbook company, bootstrapped it over the course of in total 13 years. And then when I came back into my dad's store, you know, 13 years later, I saw everything was still in the stone age, really. He had 
no point of sale system, no social media, no website, no e-commerce. So I said, dad, I'm going to just build you the platform you need. So I do the homework and I said, all right, are there any software, is there any software platform out there that could do this for him? Can Shopify do this? Can Wix do this? Can any of the platforms do it? None of the platforms could handle the nuances of, you know, uh, uh, fast moving, perishable products, local delivery. So we decided to build a platform for my dad and we realized that as we started thinking about the architecture, we realized there's 50,000 stores just like him. And how great would it be to help them all? So that's, that's when it was real, really was born because we just saw the needs of my dad, wanted to build it, and then why not make it available to everyone we basically came to. So when did you feel like you had the entrepreneurial itch? I mean, you know, I, you seem kind of like a hardened Brooklyn kid. You've probably been into a lot of fights. Like I'm soft, you know, so <laughs> you just seem like you just have, you know, like a harder type of type of background. I never saw, you know, at, did you think about wanting to get into technology at an early age? Well, you know, it was interesting. Like, so growing up in Brooklyn, as I realized getting older and living other places, it was very different from other places. Um, and also the era in like the nineties when like the you know, internet was booming, you know, I was, um, in the nineties, I was growing up working in my dad's store. And at the time there were people that came in the store one day in a Toyota Corolla and the next day they came in a Ferrari and I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And this was the boom of the stock market. There were people that were stockbrokers. They were making all sorts of money, you know, on the stock market one way or another. Um, and it got me interested in the stock market. So. I remember as a kid, I, I don't remember exactly how old I was, like 14 or 15 years old. I, somebody came in the store and they were telling me about a hot stock. And <laughs> I said, dad, could I buy this stock? And I ended up buying $500 in this stock. It ended up being a pump and dump stock um, that basically essentially over a year later went to nothing. But it got me into looking at publicly traded companies at a young age. And then when I went away to school, you know, it was like, the, you know, at the time, internet was really taking off. Um, and and I, I was into trading internet stocks. And the more I did my homework and researched those companies, one of the companies that was the biggest inspiration for me was seeing Half.com. I don't know if you if you heard of Half.com, but it was founded by a guy named Josh Koppelman, the, one of the founders of First Round Capital, one of the uh, big VC. And he founded this company, Half.com, and within less than a year, they sold it for like $350 million. And I was trading stocks and trying to turn you know a dollar into two, and I was like, wait a second, you can have an idea and people will give you money to build the idea and you can like <laughs> sky's the limit. Like you can work really hard and make a ton of money instead of having a job where you have to climb the ladder for decades. So um, in college, that's when I, I decided I'm going to build a company. But it was originally like, you know, I saw people making a lot of money in the stock market. So I thought I would be like a, you know, investment analyst. Mm -hmm. um, that's it. what I went to school for. But even though you saw the half.com story, your first business, Valor, was a bootstrap business. So can you yep. just say, like, you know, was that intentional? Was there just a lack of capital? What did you, what was your thinking kind of around that and the company building? Yeah. So um, it was a little bit of a different world then. And also my perception was, I didn't know a lot about this stuff. Right. And um, it was in 2000 that I, that I started the company out of my dorm room. And I actually thought I could build a company without any investors. I thought, um, you know, we could just build it from scratch. And um, I've always been very scrappy in terms of building stuff. And what we actually did when we started the company is um, I moved into the substance-free dorm on my campus. 
where all the engineers lived. <laughs> I love that. Story. I was the only not engineer living in the substance free dorm building that had no RAs, and people were up until like four in the morning playing video games and stuff. And I convinced a lot of people in the building to build a company with me. Um, I also was buying and selling books to make money to build the technology. So I guess coming from Brooklyn, I had this like hustler mindset of like, I don't need other people's money. And also like growing up in Brooklyn, there's a different stigma around using other people's money. It's something that people are more reluctant to do because Brooklyn is a place where you don't want to owe someone money and not be able to pay them. So I've always been in the mindset of, I'm going to make the money myself and build my own thing. So that's what I did in college. I, I was flipping books. I was knocking on doors. I had a team of people. We would go in door to door in the dorms. We'd buy a book for 20, sell it for 50 on the internet. And we do that a thousand times over. And we use that money to build our company. Wow. And then how big did Valor get before you sold it? Uh, so we ended up growing to about $100 million in sales. Whoa. Um, wow. Over, over 13 years. Over 13 years. So it was like so many learnings. I can't even, we were talking a little bit when we, the, the day we met several months ago in, um, in Del Mar, I was telling you a little bit about some of the stories that we went through. But the, the, one of the key parts to it is that when you're operating with like a shoestring budget, where if you don't make money or if you make a mistake, it's fatal, you have to be very careful. And we had certain situations that almost took us under like a dozen times. Like one time we got sued by all four of the biggest publishers simultaneously. <laughs> Like Pearson Thompson, Wiley, and McGraw Hill teamed up to sue us for like eight million dollars, and I was like, I, we we never raised equity funding, but I did borrow money from a lot of places. Like sure. I, very, I'm, I started very old school, like family, friends, people from the neighborhood. I borrowed a lot of money, credit cards. So, mm -hmm. you know, we had situations where like, oh, we got sued, got to figure this out. But um, you know, we got frauded. Um, you know, as we were building the company, and it was not something that was dissimilar to other companies. Actually, uh, a person that was in my neighborhood um, that I that I got to know was the CEO of Barnes and Noble, and I sat down with him once, and I told him about my fraud experience in terms of like when we got frauded. He's like, the same thing happened to us. The fraudsters found our website. They started buying stuff with fraudulent credit cards from multiple IP addresses. So I called up our team, and we worked until like midnight until like the next day to build fraud software on the fly. So it was like lots of experiences, but yeah, we built the company. We had, it was a, it was a real roller coaster. It's like stories for stories for years. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. And yeah. so fast forward to Mercado where you're building, you described it as an e-commerce store. Um, but most of the revenue was transactional. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it's mostly transactional revenue. There is a SaaS component, but the SaaS is relatively small. Right. And then also, like, you're not housing the inventory. You're not, like, the purveyor of, of the goods and services. So, you know, I would describe yep. your business more as a marketplace than an e-commerce business. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, it's more of a marketplace platform. Yeah. So when thinking about creating like a marketplace platform, like I've never done a marketplace. Um, I feel like it's just one of those extremely complex, hard things to get 
off the ground and get moving because it's not recurring in nature um, mm-hmm. as a, as opposed to a SaaS business. And I talked to a lot of investors um, that play in B2B SaaS and they tell me the exact same thing. But that being said, they say that their best returns have been marketplaces. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's so it's really funny. They're all like, yeah, we have the same inclination about marketplaces. We have the same fears. But if you look at our performance, it seems that marketplaces have outperformed within their portfolio. So tell me a little bit about, you know, the challenges of getting getting this um, this mar- marketplace kind of velocity up and going and how do you think about supply and demand the chicken and the egg issues mm-hmm. yeah it, it's interesting like the way i thought about it in the past and the way i think about it now are a little bit different when i first decided to build my first marketplace what i really liked about it is that as an entrepreneur you can build a really big business with a small amount of capital if you want to hustle but you have to hustle Right. So when you start a marketplace, it's not easy to convince people to participate, especially the supply early on. Right. So that's the challenge. But if you're willing to hustle, if you're willing to figure out ways and how you can create a unique value proposition for that audience, you can do it. So that's one of the reasons why I liked it early on is that, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I actually didn't even finish college um, because the company was doing well. So I just I just kept going on it. But, um, you know, one of my strongest attributes is my hustle and my resilience. So I thought, hey, let's leverage our greatest strengths to do what we can do best. And then I put together a team that was also strong and resilient. Um, so, you know, learned a lot from that. Um, but I think that as I've gotten more experience with marketplaces is that you really have to have an advantage on one side of it. And whether you have a way to get the supply or the way to get the demand, I always think the demand is more valuable. If you had demand, you could plug in the supply because who doesn't want access to the demand? Um, right. But it's really having solutions on one side or another of the of the platform. Yeah. So you need to have an edge specifically on the investor front where you can actually say with confidence that you've got the value proposition um, in order to feel like you can kind of get some traction. Yeah. And um, definitely have learned a lot more as well. We have a really awesome investor. His name is um, Lukasz Kudowski. Uh, if you've heard of him, he's just one of the founders of Delivery Hero. And okay. I spent a bunch of time with him. And one of the things that he taught me, and a lot of people will, will speak about this similarly, but when you have a marketplace, you just want to look at like a really tight region and tight cohorts to see where it's blooming and what you're doing right, and then replicate that instance. So that's another part of it is just, you know, not trying to go too broad when you start and going in a real tight segment and get a really strong network effect in a really small segment, whether it's a product category or it's a geographic region, um, but just being in a place where you can you can really be successful with a network effect. How did you uh, like what are the levers that you would see in a marketplace where you would see like, oh, okay, this this test worked better than that test? Like what are some of the variables in a, in a marketplace business model? Um, so I would say it comes down to, you know, in a consumer marketplace or whatever the, the, the customer is on the, on the demand side is looking at the retention of the cohorts. That's what it ultimately comes down to. Looking at people from month one and how many are sticking in month six. Right. So if you're able to get an audience where they're just loving your product and they keep on coming back and the retention rate is super high, you know, you have something special. 
because at the end of the day, you really have to have, for a consumer acquisition, you have to have a high enough uh, long-term value uh, LTV to be able to grow fast and be able to acquire customers. So if you have a marketplace that's effective, you're seeing really high retention rates. And it really comes down to looking at that cohort data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then when you're thinking about like velocity of transactions, like I was reading something, I get so much shit in my email box, but I was reading one thing that seemed pretty interesting. It had to do with Craigslist and its success um, over certain other marketplaces like eBay. And Craigslist actually, I think, outperformed in um, less densely populated areas because the amount of transactions was was small. Like the supply and the demand was was a smaller in quanti- quantity. Whereas, um, you know, if you were to try to put like a Craigslist um, or an or, or like an eBay, for instance, if you try to put an eBay within a local small community, you know, the person that there'd be less demand for a person looking for a used bike as opposed to like a Craigslist. So, <clears throat> you know, figuring out like the velocity of the transactions, I'm sure is is pretty important. So how did you think about that mm-hmm. in the grocery in the grocery setting? Um, you know, I, in terms of like the the density of the of the areas like regions yeah and, and as, yeah as far as like you know how did you think about like you know like what, what were you telling your suppliers that like what they could expect from a velocity perspective mm-hmm. um so i think you know what we did is we focused really on dense urban areas for a lot of reasons um with our business model it was a way for where we could drive down price because when you're in a dense urban area, you can batch deliveries and you can drive down the cost of delivery to make it really cost effective for people. So there's a lot of value in like the dense urban areas. Um, we also went after the highest quality stores. So this was another one because we said, hey, people, these are the stores people want to order from. This is where the demand is. So early on in the company, we would look at ratings and reviews on Google. We would also look at, do they have a website? Do they already have traffic? Is there like pent up demand for their product? And, you know, there's lots of different ways to do this for marketplace to understand where's the pent up demand. But what you want to, what you want to do is you want to bring supply online that people care about, that they want. And you can leverage that data on, you know, all over the internet to figure out where the right supply is. But when we went to the stores and telling them, you know, what the demand would be, it was more so around like the, the industry is going online. And I, one of the factors I remember from like my dad's store, for example, is that it feels like in my mind, the day I told my dad about this, there was a fresh direct truck driving down the street in front of our store for the first time. And I was like, we got to do this now, dad. Fresh direct is coming to our neighborhood and they're going to try to take our customers. We must build. It. So it was really it, a lot of the grocery stores. It's been in response to competition. Um, you know, brick and mortar local businesses are competitive animals where it's you know, if competition comes in, they're going to be aggressive to push them out. So it was less so about the volume. It was more so around protecting the business. Um, I, guess, I guess volume is more of the play now, but it's, it, from the beginning, it was really like, you need to give your customers this convenience or somebody else will. Gotcha. So it's kind of like a defensibility play. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. So tell, 
and now the business, I mean, COVID happened, which was a ginormous spike in the business. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I know that there's a newer kind of pivot that you were doing, which I found extremely fascinating and very impactful. Mm -hmm. So love, love to hear um, that story. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, really excited to tell this. And we're going to start, we're going to be announcing uh, a new program next week that we're rolling out called Mercado Thriving Communities around this. But, you know, our business, um, you know, started as a platform for the grocery stores to get online. And we felt as though the marketplace was the best place to do that because you can more effectively drive customers to it because you have options of lots of stores. Um, you can create a delivery membership, which creates a lot of value where, hey, you could buy in New York City, we have 350 stores. You can sign up and you can get free delivery from any of the stores by being a member. So it's a really strong value prop. So that was really, you know, that model and then advertising and Google and Facebook to really drive in new customers. So, you know, that's really where we were focused. And for us during COVID, that was a great opportunity because in the beginning of COVID, the CACs were super low um, and people were retaining really strongly. And then what happened in, uh, I would say, early last year, and this is um, this was pretty exciting, but the New York City EDC came to us and said, hey, can you help us? you guys specialize in bringing locally owned grocery stores online. Can we partner with you and get more of them on your platform? And obviously we said, of course, they came right. in as an awesome partner. We, we grew stores. Um, we made it more cost effective for them to get online in partnership with the city. And then from there, the New York city's uh, mayor's office of food policy came to us and said, wait, we have all these food access programs that we have. Can we have them powered by locally owned stores? And we said, you know, of course, we love that idea. How would we build that? What do you need? What are the requirements? Yeah. Right. So, so we did all that and, and, and we, we spent our time with them and we've created our own digital wallet concept. People can order on the platform without a credit card. Um, we formed a partnership with the mayor's office of food policy, department of health. Um, and we're helping people in need get food access through the platform. So that program you know, it got us really excited for a couple of reasons. One is because, damn, it's our mission, you know, exponentially, like from where we originally were, where we started off wanting to help people like my dad, locally owned businesses, be successful, be online, be competitive. But now, you know, our mission is enhanced. Where we're also, you know, helping people who need food access. And we're also helping reduce the rate of chronic disease because um, we're in implementing nutritional incentive programs where, People that order with SNAP, they're able to get more fresh produce. Um, essentially, if you buy fresh produce, you get uh, double double the um, double the produce for the same amount of money. So, like fifty percent off, essentially, the produce we're going to be rolling out. So, um, it's really exciting. It's like you know the mission enhanced, but helping the stores, creating local jobs, providing food access, and especially to people that have chronic diseases. So, um, that's really that partnership with New York city got us thinking in a whole new way. And it's one of these things I think that, you know, it's, it's a dream for a founder where somebody coming to you with a big hard problem that nobody has solved that you can solve. Right. And, um, we did it, we solved it. We partnered, we built enhanced our technology in so many ways. Our website is now in 12 languages. It meets federal requirements of, you know, security and privacy. We, you know, all sorts of, aspects to be able to get gain federal funding and now what we're doing is we're in conversations with 
about a half a dozen cities to roll out the same type of partnerships as New York. So, yeah, so t in short, you're taking government, like government assisted dollars, right? Or like, quote unquote, I don't know if this is the t right terminology, but food stamps or ETH or whatever they call it, you know, and you're pumping that through your platform, whereas individuals can buy the groceries that they need in a way that is much, much easier. They don't have to carry around a card. They don't need to recharge the card. Um, the government is getting full transparency on what people are buying. Um, there can be limits on, you know, is things that are probably not super healthy for them, you know, and, you know, ha don't have nutritional value or, or empty calories. I think there's an, a ginormous opportunity to work with some of these payers, these healthcare payers, um, because, mm -hmm. you, you know, the, I think the term is social determinants of health, right? Where mm -hmm. people's healthcare is so contingent upon so many different aspects of their life and food security is one of them that you can actually pipe into these health payers and they can offer this as a benefit for the people that, you know, are determined that, well, they're not taking their meds because they don't even know where their next meal's coming from. So, you know, you, you fix the meal problem, chances are they're not going to be hungry and worried about their next meal and they're going to worry about getting their prescription yeah yeah and let me let me unpack some of that so um just for clarity so there is federal nutritional assistance and the biggest federal nutritional assistance program is known as snap or also formerly known as food stamps uh, snap ebt right so this program is enormous it's almost 200 billion dollars um and tens of millions of americans are on snap to buy food recently they've uh, created the capabilities to buy with Snap Online. And we are in the process of rolling out Snap Online for locally owned grocery stores. Now that is a huge benefit for people that need food access to be able to get, get it ordered online and get it delivered to their home. Um, however, that's one thing we're doing, but we're also going after a larger opportunities here, just as you suggested, uh, healthcare, private, public health care, city programs. There's dozens of programs the city has around providing food access to people. Um, there's nonprofits, there's, you know, foundations. There's all sorts of groups that have all of these different programs and a lot of them lack high utilization numbers. So to give you an example, if you had food at a food bank and I'm somebody who needs food access, how do I know where that food bank is? How do I know when they open? How do I know if they have food? How do I know how much food they have? Can I get there every day that I need food? Right. So and the food is limited. Right. Do I want to eat potatoes and carrots again? Like I, I, I got that last time. Right. So. So, you know, with our platform, we're giving people we're removing all the friction. We're letting them go on and order online to meet the cultural appropriateness for those people, whether they you know, like to eat certain foods. If you have the fruits and vegetables they like, they're more likely to eat them. If you're kosher, if you're halal, whatever it is. For example, in New York City, we have it all. We have 350 stores meeting all the needs of New Yorkers. So that's it's really taking all these, these small fragmented programs and aggregating them all to a single platform to make food access easy for healthy food. That's incredible. What a great story. And what a, what a, what a founder's dream is that there's the demand here. They just need a technology wedge to make this yes. happen. Yeah, and um, you know, the same thing happened with my last company. You know, we were thinking ourselves, like, what, what can we build? What can we build? How will it work? 
And then we ended up spending time with our top customers and they told us what they needed. And then we grew 5X in a year and a half. Um, so it's, it's almost like I've been waiting for this moment of like <laughs> the market opportunity to come to us to tell us what they need. And then we just intensely listen and build with passion exactly what their biggest dreams are. Like if they had a magic wand, what do we build? That This is what we're doing. We, we need to find this customer. And we believe that cities and healthcare and nonprofits, food banks, food pantries, those are, they have the burning problem that we can partner with them and solve. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? That, you know, the closer you get to the customer, the easier it is to build product. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so funny. I see so many founders, they spend millions and millions of dollars putting out code that, that you know, without really much, if any, customer interaction. And, you know, it, you really can be a destroyer of capital if you don't have a good ear and like you're just you're just you're 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 missing the opportunity to build true equity value in your company if you're not having those deep conversations yeah and you know an example of my last company my my last business was a little bit strange because we were we were a renegade business um in a sense because what happened was that you know we were making used textbooks easily purchasable online and a lot of people were very upset about that the publishers obviously hated it because they didn't want people like a more efficiency of used textbooks, but also the college bookstores hated it because they were selling books for $150 and then you could buy them online for 50 bucks. So when we started, we started signing up college bookstores and then they would sign up on our platform as like Joe's book. Right? <laughs> it wasn't the name of the school. They right. didn't want anybody to know that the school bookstore was selling the same books online for like a third of the price that they're selling in the bookstore because those books weren't selling anymore. So, in the beginning of our company, we actually had, our customers didn't want to talk to us because they wanted to remain anonymous. Like they wouldn't even want us to know that it was a certain university, <laughs> right? So in the end, so we actually got into this mode of not talking to the customer. And also it's knowing who your customer even is. You know, when we started the company, I thought the college student was our, comp our, our customer, like in the first company. And then I realized, no, 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 it's the bookstore. It's the independent college bookstore and then as we, you know, I think um, one of the words that you mentioned is that like building a better relationship, a phrase you mentioned, but like as you got to know the customer better and they trusted you, they would open up to you. So as we evolved and we became more credible, it was, I always remember like a steak dinner and this person knows who this is, but like a steak dinner in Little Rock, Arkansas with a big book, independently owned book company. I said, he said, hey, I said, how can we help, you know, expand with you guys? And he goes, well, first of all, we don't really need you guys that much. You, we could sell books on Amazon. We sell on you guys because it like de-risks us, like we, so we're not dependent on Amazon. So I said, well, listen, how can I help you make money? How can I help you grow your business? And he's like, help me buy books. Help me get my hands mm -hmm. on more books. And I immediately, because I was thinking about this for like six or seven years and like all the things we could do. I'm like, I can do that. I can build this, this, and this. Would you do it? Yes. I would buy an unlimited amount of books through your platform. So we then created a reverse marketplace where people were putting in bid prices and buying books. And then we ultimately created a futures market for college textbooks to uh, pre-buy books that the buyer would get at the end of the semester. But the moral of the story is that it took a while to build relationship with the customer and to understand who the customers were that were the early adopters that would lean in if you had a new great idea. And I think, that's where we got to now with grocery is that 
they're coming to us and be like, you've been helpful to us. Can you build us more stuff that we've always wanted? And that's like, that's the goal. Like when people mm-hmm. ask you, like, I really want this. That's like the hundred net promoter score, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, because they're giving you the keys, right? They're giving you, they're, I mean, they're giving you a piece of their budget, right? And like, they're telling yeah. you to, to get in. So how do you, how do you get to that point with the customer? Um, I think one of it, um, some people do it out of the gates, like, you know, building that credibility. Like I remember I listened to a podcast about with Max Levchin talking about a firm and how early on he went to the founder of 1-800-Flowers and said, hey, if I build this thing called buy now, pay later, would you embed it in your checkout? And he's like, yeah. So like he actually, he actually got conviction and went around before he even I don't know what stage he was at, like how far the product was built. Sure. But it depends on like, you know, how, how your network is and how experienced you are. But talking to the customer and figuring out, you know, riffing with them, what do you need? And as you get more experience and more of a network, you can do that. But if you're like coming out of college or, you know, you don't have a, t- a network, it's about any like anything, like building a relationship, building a reputation, showing people that you say you're going to do something, you do it. And... And then also spending time with that customer, you know, we fly out, we sit down with the customer. Hey, how's it going? Checking in. What are we doing wrong? What, what can we do better? So I think the relationship building is really, really important. And then, um, you know, you want to try to fish it out of them to try to figure out like, is there anything that you really need? And then they might start thinking about it and tell you a year later of like, oh, Bobby asked me once if there's any technology and I just got an idea. So it's really like getting your, um, getting your uh your best customers um having that relationship but also letting them know what your vision is so if they know what your vision is include them Mm -hmm. include them and helping you build it for them because you know especially with my first company like you know stupidly i thought i knew it all like i know what they want better than them they can't visualize what they need Mm -hmm. but the reality is depending who you're working with i mean maybe in a brand new industry it's never existed before but if you want to interface with the, an existing market, they've thought about it a lot more than you have. Yeah. Like, what would help them? Yeah. No, I I think that that's true. Um. So it's so, so incredible. So what what's like a one piece of business advice you would give a founder that's trying to build this marketplace? you know, and to, to build the demand and the, and the, and the supply side, like, you know, if you were to say like, you know, conventionally, anecdotally, like what's the biggest lesson that you learned? Um, so I'll share a, a couple of tidbits, you know, one of the people that I've examined that are very successful marketplace builders are uh, rocket internet, the rocket internet team. And I've studied and I've hired people from rocket internet before to understand like, where do they go? How do they build? What do they build? And I think the best piece of advice is that when you build something, test and don't be afraid to pivot. Um, finding out where the right turf is to launch your initial market with the right customers is really key so that you can get that, um, that those really great unit economics. And another example of this is like wonder with like Mark Laurie, like he got like a neighborhood in New Jersey and he saturated the whole neighborhood. Everybody's utilizing, you know, the LTV to CAC is amazing. You know, 
LTV insane due to the retention, but figuring out how to start small. And then when you start small, like don't scale unless you have that, you know, that retention and you don't have, you could also look at the net promoter score, let people love what you have and then scale it. And then the other thing I would just throw out there, as I was mentioning is that like, gotta talk to the customer. You do not know it as much as they know their business. And if you could let them know what you bring to the table and you can respect what they do, they'll give you the gold of what to build for them. And the gold is a win-win for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I com- so completely agree with that. I feel that so many startups, um, because they hear, you know, scale, 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 right? You know, that's like the, the mantra, you know, we're built to scale. All we need to do is turn it on. We just need to raise this money. We're mm-hmm. going to scale. And I think of a startup essentially is the building blocks to getting to a scaled company, but you know, you're, you're really a small business. Right. I mean, you mm-hmm. need to fight tooth and nail. You are doing founder led sales. You're doing personal phone calls. You need to make sure that those customers are raving fans and you're going to lose money on them. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you know, especially if, you know, you're venture backed, um, yep. you know, in order to over service and to get what you need, which is the gold, which is really the roadmap. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really interesting, you know, doing this for a while, you learn a lot and you you look back at all the time you wasted on the wrong things. Um, so <laughs> you tend to get smarter because our, you know, our scarcest resource is our time. And like my last company, I spent 13 years and like 80% of it was me thinking I knew it all. And then mm-hmm. I was like put in my place and felt good because then the company accelerated when I was put in my place. <laughs> but I, I paid the price of not not listening, you know. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Bobby, thank you so much for coming on. Loved your story. Of course. Um, I think that what you're doing is actually super incredible. I love this, you know, direction that you're going on, addressing food insecurity um, through data, through, you know, um, leveraging software. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the Capital Stack. If you liked it, please like it, comment, subscribe. Um <laughs> And we will see you next week. We drop an episode every Tuesday on all your major platforms, Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.